Hear the word of the Lord. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word which brings life into being. Your word which causes deer to give birth. I pray that your word, by the power of your spirit, would spark something in our hearts, in our souls, in our community this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, once, um, about, actually, 20 years ago, I was a part of um, a young church plant, and don't make fun of me, the name of this church was called Vintage 242. Um, It's a pretty ridiculous name. Uh, And our logo was equally as ridiculous, you know, it was 2004, so like block letters and edgy, it was cool, kind of looked like a CrossFit gym logo, Um, but it was a church. And, uh, um, you know, this is, this is the early days of church planning. Church planning in 2004 was kind of just coming into vogue around the country. No one really even knew who Tim Keller was at this time. People were just kind of starting to discover him. And, um, and, of course, our church was named Vintage 242 because we were naming ourselves after this passage here in Acts 2. Right? 242, where the, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking the bread, and the prayers. And, uh, you know, Vintage Christianity, and so that's, that's the name of the church. And we had this highly idealistic vision of what the church would be like. And maybe, maybe you do even coming in here. The church is going to be great. We're going to share our stuff together. We're going to live in each other's homes. We're going to be one big happy family. No problems, right? It's going to be great. Um, but about four years after our church um, was planted, there was a church split. Uh, and then a couple years after that, it closed because of relational issues and conflict and leadership that couldn't be resolved. Um, so quickly it devolved. You know, as soon as like the, the real nature of living life together um, started to happen, um, it dissolved. Uh, they ended up being a people who were easily offended and couldn't ask for forgiveness or extend it. Um, they weren't ready for life together. Which makes you wonder, how can this happen? How does a church who says we value, we're gonna build ourselves off of, off of a passage like this, which I would say every church probably should, but this church especially named itself after it, um, valuing those tight-knit relationships, spending every day together, 
How can they value that and end up imploding because of personal conflict? Um, and I would, I would say it's because we're actually too idealistic. Uh, we took this one paragraph of scripture, which is good, and uh, we uh, isolated it from the rest of the story of Acts, assuming that life together would be simple and easy. We weren't prepared for the, the challenging realities of what happens anytime you live with anybody. And anybody who's ever lived with anybody, whether it's your family or roommates or spouses or children, you know that life together is not always easy. Um, and so when, when those moments, those challenging realities of life came, they actually crushed our community. We weren't, we weren't ready for the, the challenging realities of what it looks like to actually wrestle through life together, to wrestle through ugly stuff, to, to sin against each other and forgive each other. We weren't ready for, we weren't prepared for that. And, uh, and, you know, this kind of idealism happens to young churches all, all the time. I'm sure even some of you maybe are idealistic about this community. And I can't tell you how many different people I find that are going to plant churches and they'll talk to me and they'll say, yeah, the vision for our church is we're going to be just like this community here in Acts. They, you know, we're going to strip it down. We're going to meet in homes. We're just going to share life together. We're going to do the Acts thing where they did everything right. You know, that's the problem with modern day churches is we're not meeting in homes anymore. And uh, we got away from Acts. Uh, and so we're going back to the beginning. And my favorite thing is always to remind them what happens shortly after this. You find stories like Ananias and Sapphira where they're like stealing money and then lying about it and then they get killed. So, uh, so it's not all sunshine and butterflies. Uh, in fact, if you've read any New Testament letter, Paul's you know, got to correct a lot of problems within the community's interpersonal relationships. And there's some ugly ones. If you've ever read Corinthians, you know. Um, and so, uh, so as, as, the, as the church, and also as the church grew, they never stayed in homes. As soon as the, the church could, what did they do? They built beautiful buildings. Because uh, this is what the church does. They're gathering thousands of people. They're not all meeting in homes. So sometimes we have this idealistic vision for what the church is or what it was, and it's just not real. And as beautiful as the scene is here, right, it's this aspirational goal for the church. I think it, it brings out realities of life together, that it's, it's actually hard. Uh, whenever you attempt to have life together with anybody, there will be conflict. So one thing I can guarantee you, uh, conflict is a sign of relationship. Uh, it's hard. And we have to be careful. We can't be overly idealistic about this new community that's being formed, about this community that's being formed. Uh, or it's going to shock you when problems come and it will actually end up destroying our community the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I'm going to quote a lot of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've never, never read Life Together, it's a very good book. I highly recommend it. Um, but he uh, says this. He says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. What he's saying is if we just have this idealized version of what life together is going to be like, we're actually going to destroy it. Because we can never live up to it. And on the, but on the flip side, we also have to fight against cynicism um, that only sees the negative aspects of community. And, and both ends of that spectrum we have to guard against. And I think as Christ is establishing a new community that is the church here, and as you see what this new community is committed to, I think it actually guards against both of our temptations towards idealism and our temptations towards cynicism, which in this church, my guess is most of us probably gravitate towards cynicism than idealism, but maybe we're 50-50 in there. But as God is creating this new kind of community, um, one that is aspirational, he knows that temptation of us. And I think that this passage helps us um, 
have a realistic vision and a hopeful vision of what this church um, is supposed to be like. And I think there's, there's three things that this new community is being formed by so that we can be a church that endures uh, the ups and downs of life together. And these three, three things we're gonna talk about are these. It's repentance, faith, and practice. Repentance, faith, and practice. So first, the church is formed by repentance. Just to take a second to catch us up on context, we did skip a little bit. Remember, as we're going through Acts, we're gonna kinda skip through the, the book, and so there's gonna be some times where we'll skip um, parts, and that's just how we're gonna do it. Um, so just to catch you up on where we're at, right, the Spirit came. Last week we talked about Pentecost, the Holy Spirit pouring himself out on the disciples. Uh, the people that are gathered around, they, they're like, man, these guys are drunk. And so Peter gets up and he s- starts his sermon, right, the very first sermon that the church has, has ever heard, the very first sermon behind a Christian pulpit, and he begins, uh, we are not drunk. Um, it's a pretty epic opening line, you know, to the church, you know, just life together is, we're not drunk. Um, and then he proceeds to preach, and he preaches a sermon to them about Jesus. And, uh, and he doesn't hold back. He's like, you know, Jesus, who you killed, the one that you killed on the tree, actually was the long way to Messiah. And, uh, and he actually rose from the dead. And, and then he, he quotes some Old Testament, kind of showing that Jesus is a fulfillment of, of the Old Testament. And, uh, but the summary of the sermon is, Jesus, who you killed, was the Messiah. He rose from the dead. And, uh, and then, you know, the people, it says here, were cut to the heart. The people that are hearing this sermon, you know, they were gripped by this. They're like, man, if that's true, if Jesus really is the Messiah, if he did rise from the dead, what do we, what do? We do? Um, a response is demanded. And then we see this in verse 37 and, and 38. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? This is what Peter says. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's pretty simple. Repent and be baptized. Now, baptism, we're gonna, we're gonna deal with that at the, at the end of the sermon so you can put that on the shelf. Um, the, the very first thing he says to them is repent. You know, and repentance is this word that we, we toss around. We, we talk about actually in the Mark passage we read, the first words of Jesus are repent um, to the people. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And uh, it's this word, though, that means to, to turn, right? To, to turn from this direction to, to this direction. To stop doing this thing and start doing this thing. It's a very action-oriented word. It's a direction-oriented word. And the, the first part in turning and following Jesus is, is to submit to his rule. To say, hey, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit to your rule. Uh, you are the king. I'm, not, I'm no longer going to be king of my own life. You're going to be the king of my life. And, and part of that means I have to admit that I've done wrong. I have to admit my faults. You have to recognize your neediness for a king and your inability to rule yourself. Repentance sees the truth that, listen, you cannot fix all the broken stuff in your life. And all of us have broken things in our life, both things that we've done and things that have been done to us. Uh, you can't fix those problems. And so repentance says, listen, you're going to have to look honestly at your heart and recognize that you are broken in ways that you don't even understand. And you have to call to Christ and say, save me, forgive me. Because, you know, our, our brokenness is deeper than just like, yeah, sometimes I don't pre-wash the dishes when I start the dishwasher and it gets the sticky stuff on it. You know, you should always pre-wash your dishes. Um, uh, it's, it's not just like this, oh, I forgot to do this thing. It's not a personality flaw. We need to repent because we need to recognize we have a fatal flaw within us that you cannot rescue yourself from. 
There's nothing that you can do on your own to rescue yourself from your sin. The only way we can uh, overcome this is through repenting, remitting our fault, being honest about our inability to save ourselves. Uh, and, you know, it's, if we believe that the gospel is true, we can do this. If we believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he did indeed come and die, uh, that he did indeed come to forgive our sins and give us the power of the spirit, that he did conquer death, that he did this out of love for us, we can actually come to him and repent. Uh, we can only walk in repentance if we trust that we can't mess up so much that we'll run out of his love. Because repentance isn't just a one-time thing for the Christian, it's, it's a lifetime posture. It's one of the reasons why we practice it every week together because it's something that we have to learn. Uh, we have to, it's gotta be a regular part of our life together. Uh, and if you, if you question God's love for you, if you're worried that he's not going to forgive you for something, if you're always on the edge of your seat, man, man, maybe this time he's actually not going to forgive me. If you're actually worried like that, you're never going to be honest about your faults. What are you going to do? You're going to hide them. Uh, you'll pretend that you're fine. And many people live their lives in the church like this. They come into the community thinking, listen, I have it all together. Or maybe more likely, they come in thinking everyone else in the room has it all together. And so they just want to fit in. And so you got to pretend to kind of keep up with everybody. Um, and, uh, it, and when this happens, it destroys community. Uh, and, you know, this is, again, this is kind of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And we're actually not, I'm actually not going to preach a sermon on Ananias and Sapphira this time through Acts. But they're kind of a case study of what we're talking about. Like everyone else is selling their land, giving their money away. And so they're like, sweet, we're going to give our money away too. And they sell this land, but they actually keep some for themselves. And then they lie about it. And the, the reality is, you know, as I've read through that story, is like, I don't think they actually had to lie about it. They could have said, hey, we're going to sell our land and give our money. But we're going to keep some portion because we, we need to keep some for ourselves. We're going to give a good chunk to the church. Um, but they said, no, we gave it all. That's good. Uh, so why, why would they lie about something like, like that that they didn't need to lie about? Ultimately, I think because they didn't understand what repentance was. Repentance presumes that we do not have it all together. Uh, repentance presumes that we aren't an idealistic community that has it figured out. It presumes that we are a needy community who are bonded together actually by our neediness. This isn't a community of the perfected. It's a community of broken pieces being gathered in and, protect, and perfected by the Father, molded and shaped into something beautiful. But this gathering of the broken can't happen Unless we repent and we're honest about our neediness and brokenness. Now, I'm going to, you know, saying, I'm going to be honest with you about my sin and my struggles. I'm going to trust Jesus to forgive your sins and my sins. And we're going to repent to each other and share that together. Again, Bonhoeffer has a great line about this. Uh, he says this. He says, many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are all sinners. It's a profound line. And that happens time and time again in church when we don't remember who we are. We are the people who need to be saved. Uh, one of my favorite uh, lines that we use for words of comfort is, I think it's in 1 Timothy, when it, um, well, what is the line? It's one of my favorites. I haven't memorized. It's gone from my head. But basically, uh, the, the thing that qualified, Jesus came into this world to save sinners, he says. And so it's like, if you are a sinner, that's good. That means that's why Jesus came. So being a sinner is actually the thing that qualifies you to receive forgiveness. And, uh, and that is always true for us in the church. It's our common denominator. 
So maybe a question to consider at this point is, where are the places in your life that you try to hide and polish and make look better than they are um, so that people think that you are better than you are? Where are those places that you're hiding your brokenness? Uh, in the church, in this new community, we cannot survive and be built up in the Lord and be powered by the Spirit and serve each other until we learn that first and foremost, we are a repenting community, which means we will wrong each other. But because Christ is forgiving our sins, we can repent. Uh, so maybe, maybe a question then is how do we actually grow in this? Uh, how do we actually become the kind of community that learns to, to repent and be honest with our faults uh, and our ugliness and learns to trust each other in a way? Because it's not like you just walk in a room and you start saying everything that you've done wrong. It's probably not wise. So how do, we, how do we actually learn to trust each other and, and grow to be a trusting place for people to be able to do this? Um, well, I think it's in the, the, the second aspect that's formed here in this new community of the church, and it's faith. Right? The first, the church is formed by repentance, but second, the church is formed by a common faith. I think this is the thing that, it, that enables us to repent. Um, I think this is, I'm reading between the lines a little bit here. You're not going to see the word faith here, but you are going to see a shared belief that happens. Uh, in verse 44, it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. So there's a, there's a shared uh, belief a shared confession together. So what is that belief? What is their faith? Well, the faith is Jesus, right? Namely, that, that Jesus Christ is, died for the forgiveness of their sins and will give them the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and he's gonna call his people to himself. Uh, so that's their faith in Christ, that Christ is who he says he is, that he did die, rise again, that he does indeed pardon the guilty, that he forgives our sins, and his forgiveness is not on a short leash, but he, he gives it to all who ask, dishing it out from his throne. This is the shared faith of this community, and this is the thing that when we actually believe that this is true, this is the thing that allows us to walk in repentance uh, with each other, because it's our faith that this is true. Our believing that that is true is what enables us to ask for forgiveness, because it's the only way to receive it. And, uh, you know, John Calvin puts it like this. He says, repentance not only follows faith, but it is produced by it. Repentance not only follows faith, but it is produced by it. By. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And, and these people here, they're cut to the heart. They say, Jesus, if Jesus is that, uh, then I, I believe him. What do I do? It's that faith that, that they believed that led to repentance. They heard Peter and they're like, yeah, we see it now. We believe. So we repent so that Jesus will forgive us our sins. Jesus is the king who pardons all the lawless uh, who desire to enter his kingdom. And, and having that faith, believing that this is true, means that you can actually step out in repentance. Because if this is true, if this is why Jesus did come, then why do, we have no reason to hide anymore. We have no reason to pretend that we aren't needy. Because if we aren't needy, then we don't need Jesus. If we don't need Jesus, he can't forgive our sins. And so if Jesus is who he said he is, then we have every reason in the world to step out in repentance and honesty. This is what the church community is marked by. And, and this is one of the reasons, again, why we practice confessing our sins every week and why we practice uh, saying what we believe every week in the creed. Uh, to remind us of our bond of faith and repentance that no matter how you feel any given Sunday, you are a person who needs to learn to repent. So we're gonna put those words on your lips because you are a needy person. And, and no matter how you feel about your belief like any given day, we're gonna put the words of our faith on your lips. You remember that which is true, more true than your feelings are, more true than your present circumstances are the, are the words that we say together. It's our shared bond of faith, and it's the strongest bond that we have. 
It turns strangers into brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. The common bond of faith is what unites everyone in this room. And you know, many of us in this room would have never in a million years know who each other are. Maybe we have nothing in common except for a common bond of faith. Our faith marks us and it creates a humble community that's constant in its repentance. Not in a way that dismisses the gravity of our sin, like it's okay, I just did it again. Yeah, you gotta forgive me. But in a, in a way that is eager to actually put our sin to death because as the spirit fills the community, our common bond of faith is to strive towards holiness together. Where our ideal is that we aren't ideal. You know, the, the church, this is gonna come as a shocker, is a highly dysfunctional uh, community. So much so that it, it can't help but shatter any ideal you have about it. It doesn't take that long to happen. It's probably already happened to you in this room uh, here that have been around. It will shatter your ideals. Um, but it will also shatter your cynicism because it's a community that freely admits its issues. It's hard to be cynical about something that's honest about its faults. Uh, but it gives us something better. Because I think when we follow this pattern, it actually gives us something that is real. A real community that's not held together by us and our strength, but is a byproduct of the power of the Spirit who produces repentance and living according to holiness. This is the Spirit's work. So how do we, how do we grow into this kind of real community? How do, we, how do we develop these reflexes? How do we help the Spirit to work in us in these ways? And I would, I would argue it's in the third thing that we're going to see here. It's in our practices. It's in our habits together. It's in our doing that we are actually shaped. You are what you do. And ultimately our repentance and our faith are proved out in our practices. This is the third final thing is that the church is formed by its practices. The church is formed by its practices. And you know, there was someone once who said, you know, how you spend your days is how you spend your lives. And I think that that is true for the church. So what are the practices here? What are the habits that they committed themselves to that help shape this in them? Well, I think there's five things um, here that you're going to see that strengthen the work of the Spirit in our community. Uh, the first is this. Uh, it says here, uh, verse 42, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the means by which they had a shared faith, right? The apostles' teaching was them preaching who Jesus was, reinterpreting the Old Testament. Like in the sermon here, they reinterpret Joel and the Psalms uh, through the lens of Jesus. Um, and this is what we continue to do. This is the essential and first habit we need to be strengthened and formed by the Spirit because how does the Spirit speak to His people? It's through His Word. Jesus, the Word made flesh. And, you know, as a church, we have to be committed to teaching the same things that the apostles taught us. We can't stray from their teachings. We are people first and foremost formed in and through the Word. And for us to be faithful in our practice, we have to continue this. There's this amazing truth that the Scriptures are this deep well that, that never runs dry. I don't know if you ever think about it. It's amazing that we're still talking and learning from this book. You would think that we would have drained it by now, but we, we haven't even scratched the surface. How amazing is that? This living word we have to commit to, it's the, it's the way that Jesus uh, serves his people and speaks to his people. Uh, and, you know, if we do stray from this practice, it'll be our demise. In fact, when you look through the history of the church, the first thing to go, the first domino in uh, any downfall of churches, both individually and, you know, denominations, is always their view of Scripture. Um, when you stray from the practice, when you, when you uh, devalue it, when you pick and choose what you believe from it, when you stop reading it publicly, when you stop reading it in your homes, 
you will become a church that will fade away. You know, there's that scene that we talked about in Revelation where Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands tending to the wicks. It's kind of beautiful scene of Jesus kind of tending to the flame that is the church, tending to the churches. The way he tends to the churches is by his word. So when we stray from it, we stray from Christ, we stray from the spirit, and then we become cut off. This is how he reminds us who he is and who we are. So the first most essential practice of the church is to be people of the word. Secondly, you see here's fellowship. Verse 44, 45, uh, it says, and, they, and, all who believed, uh, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. It's kind of this beautiful picture of just Christian fellowship, gathering in each other's homes, sharing meals, sharing all that they had. And, you know, uh, this isn't some weird communist society where it was like you have to give everything you don't own anything anymore uh, this is a voluntary giving of oneself to each other it's beautiful and this is what we long for in this room and this is what I hope you've experienced to some degree when you have people show up at your door with a meal or people helping you out or maybe you're the one helping others out we do that uh, because this is what the church does we give of ourselves to each other when you have a need I have a need when you have a gift I have a gift and this is a people who have recognized that to follow Jesus means I, gotta, I actually got to live like he lived, to give like him, to serve like him. Jesus who gave his whole self to his people, right? What is love? Love is laying down your life for the sake of others. This is what he did. And so this is what his people do. To be little Christ is to follow him in this way. And so we're called to give of our whole selves. This is a hospitality that is radical, but hospitality actually doesn't need the radical modifier to it, because hospitality in general is a radical thing. It's a word that means love of stranger. Love of the outsider, bringing the outsider in, not just out of duty, but it's out of love for Christ. And that the more we understand the gospel, the hospitality of Christ, the more hospitable we become. We become transformed by this practice. It's no wonder that this is one of the requirements uh, for becoming an, an officer in the church, an elder and a deacon, because it's a sign that you actually understand the gospel. You understand what Jesus has done for you, by extending what Jesus has done with, for you to others, inviting the outsider in to dine at your table. And, uh, you know, what, what's being talked about here might look a little different practically for us, you know, uh, in our day and age. We don't live the same way. We don't live in the same necessarily even proximity of each other as they did here. But I think the, the principle of this practice of sharing our lives with each other is still something we're called to. As we do it, though, we do it with the people who will sin against each other. And so there's this kind of, you know, back and forth here that the closer you get to people, right, the, the more likely they're, they're going to sin against you. But isolation is like betrays the whole idea of community. And so, um, and so it's, it's kind of a dangerous thing to do um, uh, because it creates opportunity, but it does create opportunities for repentance, and uh, this is what life together does. It, it pushes us together, forces us out um, of our individual lives, and it, and it forces us to actually reckon, reckon with the gospel and the way we live our lives with each other. Uh, we can't grow as a real people in isolation. That real thing that we want, that connection with people, only happens as we learn to live life together and trust our lives with each other. And as we do this, the Spirit fills us and strengthens us. And it leads us to the, the third thing here is the, the sacraments. 
you see that they have the breaking of bread. And just one language thing I do want to point out is um, you see it twice, breaking of bread, but one's different. Like in verse 42, it says, to the breaking of bread. And in verse uh, 46, the temple together and breaking of bread. And I think those are two actually distinct things happening here. Uh, the breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper that we, we, we do every week. Uh, breaking bread is just meals. It's a common, a breaking of bread. It's the common meals that we share in each other's homes. Um, and, uh, and as the church grows, as Acts kind of grows, the church begins to develop. Like at this point, there's no elders and deacons like we have them today, right? But by Acts 6, it looks like they're probably having their first diaconate being installed. And then by, you know, years later, you have you know, Paul's writings that kind of begin to establish these different offices to govern their church. And this is kind of the first installation of the Lord's Supper that we're witnessing, where they gather together, breaking of bread and wine, remembering weekly that we are a people who are united to Christ through the point out of his blood and the breaking of his body. And this is a, this is a practice that unites them to Christ and to each other. And the, and the Holy Spirit strengthens our hearts in this meal. And if, if you've ever gone a long time without taking communion, you can, you can see that, that, that your faith and even your repentance and your connection to the Spirit actually begins to, to fade. Because the Spirit is actually active and present in this meal, strengthening your faith, strengthening your heart, strengthening your endurance in ways that are unique to this meal and this table together. The Spirit really is present feeding us, feeding our faith. It's an essential practice of the church because to come to the table presumes, listen, I'm a repenting person with a shared faith in Jesus. And so I come to this table to feast on him with each other, to be united to him and to each other. The other sign, uh, sacrament that you see here of the two is baptism. Um, you see that, you know, in the verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. This is for you and for your children and all who are far off. And it's, it's another sign that's given to the early church to mark us. And it, you know, replaces circumcision. So for, it's for you and for your children. It's this covenantal sign that points to God's promises to his people, that he is at work in them. It's a sign that you are now part of this new community. Uh, it's uh, it, it's formed by the Spirit, in the Spirit. And so this baptism is this marker, this sign, this, this birthmark in a way that you're given that says this is who you are. You are part of the people of God. You are not your own, but you belong to him. And you were not born into the church by accident, uh, but it was on purpose. And now you will be raised up in the faith and we will help raise each other up in the faith. So the water is this outward sign pointing to the washing and regeneration of the spirit of God. That in, in this, you find that we are a deeply sacramental people. That it's an essential practice, an essential way to being filled with the spirit. These, these habits that were given to be formed into this new community. And, you know, one of the things you see is that sacraments, they don't happen in isolation. How do they happen? They happen in community with each other. Um, they, they happen here. Right at home, you have bread and wine on your table, but it's, it's merely bread and wine. Um, water is merely water at home. You know, I hear lots of stories of you talking about your kids or baptize each other in the, in the bathtub, and it's cute. But that's not actually baptism. It's just, it's just water. Um, cleaning you. Uh, but here in fellowship around the apostles teaching, we are, uh, these, these normal, normative things, water, bread and wine are actually transformed by the spirit. And it's in these partaking of the sacraments that says that, listen, we are fed and equipped not by human means, but by the spirit of God who mysteriously dwells in these elements and applies them and their benefits to us, building our faith, building our community, building our connection and our love for each other. So each time we participate them, we participate them in community. 
And there's all those, there's also this beautiful truth in that, that these promises aren't just for the cognitively abled, where you have to pass some sort of test and you have to have some sort of IQ level, but they're for our children. Uh, let the little children come to me, Jesus says. This is not just for the Jews, but for all who are far off, which is you and me. The ends of the earth, they, they remind us that it isn't our strength forming this community, but God, by the power of the Spirit doing this work, feeding us by his word and Lord's Supper. Um, the next practice you see here is prayer. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's two general aspects to prayers. One is this kind of vertical prayer, recognizing who God is. God, you're great, you're mighty, you're awesome. Um, and then there's the, one is the kind of vertical, recognizing God and praying for the needs of, of others. Um, and, uh, but in prayer, you, you recognize your dependence on God. To call out to him is to say, I depend on him. And, and there's, there's this truth that you, you really learn in marriage is that you cannot change someone else's heart, right? Uh, it's an impossible thing to do. I, I cannot convict people of sin no matter how hard I try. And it's in prayer that we learn this truth. And then we rest and rely on the spirit work to, to do this, work in each other. Again, Bonhoeffer has a great quote about this, about prayer. He says this, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. It's, it's in prayer that we actually learn to love each other. We learn to have compassion on and for each other. It's where we learn and realize I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. But we're all a people needy, coming to the Lord, depending on him and his spirit. It's an essential practice to help us to be a real community, to keep us in the faith. It's in prayer that we learn to love each other. It's in prayer that we're formed and shaped. And lastly and quickly, this is something that's more inferred, um, but it seems that this community isn't doing this in some son of, in, in a commune trying to keep themselves unstained by the world, like they've built a bunch of fences around themselves where they can just do this work and have no one bother them, but they're living like this in the middle of the city and people notice. Look at the end here, verse 47. And praising God and having favor with all the people. What an interesting addition to this text that people knew what they were doing and they had favor with people around them, and, which means people saw what they were doing and they were attracted to it. Because everyone actually wants this kind of thing. Uh, we all know that we need this kind of connection uh, to each other. But the problem is this kind of connection and this kind of way cannot actually be held together in any community outside of Christ. You know, different communities try and they, and they resemble parts of it. Like you go to a gym or you have a baking group. I don't know if that's a thing. But hiking clubs. Uh, shared interest works to connect us for a bit until you break a rule in the group and then you're gone. I, the church is meant to be the one place where we're bound by something deeper than our likes and dislikes, but we're bound by Christ himself. And he calls all kinds of people to himself. And yeah, there's still many issues. And there is an aspirational side, something that we call hope. Uh, and it requires a lot of work from us. But we can actually do this work because Christ is the one who goes before us, having already done the heavy lifting. If you consider just for a second the, the life of Christ, Christ knows the pain of living in community like we don't. Living in community is what got him killed. Right? Who was it that betrayed him? It wasn't one of his enemies. It was one of the 12, one of his best friends. He knows the pain of living in community. He knows the pains that you've experienced trying to live in community. But this is why he came. 
Because on our own, we're all kind of like Judas, self-serving, using community for different kinds of personal gains. But it's Jesus, out of his love for us, who comes and submits himself to the sin and the stains of the world so that he could root out the sin that went back to the first sin in Adam so he could defeat this. And he does so as he dies, subjecting himself to the effects of sin, but rising again. Now Jesus is at work creating a new resurrection community that is birthed from the tomb, one that is held together by his spirit. And I think one of the things that this means is as we follow Jesus, there's going to be many deaths that we're going to have to encounter. We're going to have to die to ourselves to enter this community. We follow Jesus in his pattern of death and resurrection. And there's so many deaths that have to happen when you live in community, whether it's in the church, here, or it's in homes or any community that you live in. You have to die. You have to die to your pride, your ego, your sense of safety. But it is in dying that you are rising again as Jesus did. This is the kind of community that we're called to, and it's not for the faint of heart. It will seem impossible at times, but it is possible because we are enabled by the power of the Spirit and the practices of the Spirit. So you actually, we actually can build this here. We can grow into the community that is marked by repentance, faith, and these ancient practices. And this is something as a church that we are striving for This is something as a church that we are working towards that we can endure. May we be a people like this and never grow old of the practices of the church but continue to grow in them of repentance and faith and may we have favor with all the people we encounter that that many would be added to the kingdom through our witness. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your mercy, for your grace, for your love. We give you thanks that you are knitting of people together here at St. Andrews. I pray that you would continue to knit us together by the power of your spirit, that you strengthen us in the bond of love and faith and brotherhood, and that your spirit would dwell strongly within us, teaching us to follow you and live by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.